0: Hi, and welcome to Applied Foundations. This week, we're looking at physical, self, social, and moral development. Before we begin, I'd like to provide a quick content warning. During this chapter, we will be discussing some sensitive topics, including child abuse and eating disorder. So if these topics are sensitive for you, I ask that you proceed with care through the podcast. Also, I'd like to note that in the context of physical, social, and moral development, we will discuss what is typical of specific sexes and genders. Physical development is largely dependent on sex assigned at birth, which encompasses anatomy, physiology, genetics, and hormones. This is not to be confused with gender, which deals with identity, cultural roles, and norms, relationships, and power. We will notice an interplay between sex and gender as we move through developmental milestones such as how early or late maturation impacts boys and girls differently or how men and women look at morality. Please remember that not all students will have genders that directly align with their sexes or fit within the binary and that is totally okay. What is important is that we are all well-versed enough in typical physical, cognitive, and social development that we can not only assist our students in advancing their skills, but also recognize the signs of atypical development that may require intervention in some unique situations. We discussed last week that development is the interplay between our genetics and our environment and how that relationship shapes who we become. As educators, it's important to note how our students are developing, what is typical and atypical, how various changes in family, home, and societal dynamics impact development, and that we can apply current literature to create inclusive and adaptive classroom environments imagine a newborn baby and we're going to name him Argy. now imagine how Argy might begin to develop physically cognitively socially and linguistically through the first decade or two of their life let's begin with physical development before baby humans make it to us as k-12 educators they go through immense growth they go from tiny little potato humans to walking talking people with thoughts and opinions of their own Once Argy becomes a preschooler, around ages 4 or 5, they're focusing on gross and fine motor skills, they're learning how to kick and catch, and realizing which hand they prefer to write with. As Argy becomes an elementary schooler, they may or may not be progressing at the same rate as their peers. They are fine-tuning muscular control and increasing their precision and strength. They may notice that girls in their classes are progressing more quickly than boys physically, especially toward the end of elementary school. As the middle and high school years approach, our once tiny little R.E. will reach the size they will be in adulthood, and that timing depends on sex, hormones, and cultural and ethnic background. Again, girls tend to reach physical maturity sooner than boys at this stage. There are circumstances where physical development may not meet the typical pace. So let's start with early maturation. It's a phenomenon that represents differently for boys and girls. For early maturing boys, they often enjoy high social status, popularity, and may even take on leadership roles. However, there's sort of a flip side to that where early maturing boys are more likely to engage in sexual activity, drug and alcohol abuse, and eating disorders. I've included an article in the additional resources section of the module about a young man who had radically early puberty and how that experience impacted his life. For early maturation in girls, the picture is somewhat different. It doesn't lead to the same social advantages and can, in fact, pose challenges. Early maturing girls may face emotional struggles and the societal expectations around their physical development can impact their self-esteem and overall well-being. Now, late maturing individuals, regardless of sex or gender, may experience a delay in achieving the physical milestones that their peers have already reached. This delay can influence social dynamics, self-perception, and even academic experiences. The negative impacts of late maturation may be more acute for boys than for girls. A huge important aspect of physical development is play. Let's think about Argy. Play will impact their brain development, language acquisition, and social skills. Through play, Argy will release tensions, learn problem-solving skills, adapt to new situations, and develop essential cooperative and negotiation skills. We'll cover this in more detail later in the semester, but the benefits of play are a big reason why, according to the American Pediatric Association, recess should not be withheld for punitive or academic reasons. Play is also an important part of pedagogy and instruction. As a colleague of mine said to me recently, we don't stop playing as we get older, but we stop connecting play with learning. As Argy grows up, they might play board games, video games, or mobile games, but fewer and fewer of their teachers will continue to incorporate play into instruction. Those of you who are interested in teaching secondary and even higher ed should remember that play is a beneficial learning tool at all ages. In recent years, there's been a growing concern about childhood obesity. The increase in sedentary activities like watching TV and playing passive games has been linked to this trend. Recess and physical activity emerge as crucial countermeasures, offering children opportunities to engage in active play and maintain a healthier lifestyle. I do want to note here that there are a variety of factors that impact a child's physical development and weight, including environment, genetics, secondary medical issues, and medications. So while we should work to make sure our school environments provide plenty of opportunities for physical activity and play, We don't want to get into the business of diagnosing students or making judgments about their health or lifestyle based solely on weight. Another concern for physical development is the prevalence of eating disorders in children and adolescents. Anorexia and bulimia are both common, and it's good to know some warning signs. For anorexia, students might exhibit uncharacteristic paleness, brittle fingernails, and the development of fine dark hairs all over the body. Beyond the physical, keep an eye on emotional indicators like depression, insecurity, mood swings, and loneliness. Bulimia comes with its own set of signs. Children and adolescents struggling with bulimia may engage in binge eating episodes, followed by purging behaviors. Be attentive to behavioral clues like frequent trips to the bathroom after meals, particularly when accompanied by the smell of vomit. Weight fluctuations and secrecy around eating habits are also red flags. Eating disorders often take a toll on emotional well-being watch for signs of emotional distress, including persistent sadness, withdrawal from social activities, and changes in overall mood. A sudden preoccupation with food, dieting, or body image can signal an underlying struggle with disordered eating. If you notice signs of eating disorders in a child or adolescent, take them seriously. Open communication, empathy, and seeking professional help are essential steps in providing the necessary support for recovery. The text and the slide deck both give some guidance for teachers. I added some information to the slide deck because I felt the text was a little outdated. The main idea here is to be supportive and attentive while focusing on students' non-physical qualities and that all bodies are good bodies. Now we're going to shift to psychosocial development, which describes how a person's personality develops and how social skills are learned from infancy through adulthood. We'll begin with how our students' ecology or how they relate to one another and their surroundings impacts development. Yuri Brofenbrenner's bioecological model is a comprehensive framework that recognizes the interplay between individuals and their environment. At its core, this model emphasizes the interconnectedness of various systems that influence human development. Remember that a system is a group of interacting or interrelated elements that act according to a set of rules to form a unified whole. So let's get into the first layer of the bioecological model, the micro system. This refers to immediate relationships and activities that directly impact an individual It includes family, peers, school, and any immediate community where the person person interacts regularly. These micro level experiences shape the foundation of a person's development. Moving outward, we encounter the mesosystem. This layer involves the relationships and connections between different microsystems. For example, the relationship between a child's school and their family, or the interaction between a community and the religious institutions within it. The mesosystem highlights how these interconnected systems influence one another. Beyond the immediate social circles lies the exosystem, a layer that encompasses larger social settings. This includes institutions and structures that indirectly affect an individual's development. Examples include the workplace of a parent impacting family dynamics or community policies influencing local schools. These external factors play a crucial role in shaping a child's experiences. At the heart of Bronfenbrenner's von model is the macro system, representing the broader cultural context. So this includes societal norms, values, beliefs, and overarching cultural influences. It acknowledges that development is not isolated, but deeply embedded within the cultural fabric, influencing behaviors, expectations, and opportunities. Completing the model is the chronosystem, which is an element that's really often overlooked. This layer recognizes the influence of time on development. So historical events, societal changes, and individual life transitions contribute to the evolving nature of human development. So let's dive deeper into some of those social contexts. First, we begin with family. Families come in various shapes and sizes, each with its own unique parenting style. Research suggests that parenting styles significantly impact a child's social adjustment. In European-American middle-class families, children of authoritative parents tend to be happy and relate well to others. On the flip side, children of authoritarian parents may experience feelings of guilt or depression, while those with permissive parents might face challenges in interacting with peers. I use the term parents loosely here to mean the adults in charge of the development of the child. Remember that not all students will live with what we would consider traditional parents. It's important to recognize that parenting styles vary across cultures. Cultures may nurture attachments differently, and the quality of these attachment bonds has long-term implications for forming relationships throughout life. Developmental research initially linked autonomous parenting with positive outcomes, while controlling styles were considered detrimental. However, cross-cultural studies challenged this by showing positive outcomes for children raised with seemingly stricter styles in some minority groups. To reconcile these differences, researchers propose that warmth and involvement, not the particular parenting style, might be the crucial factors for child development. So this highlights the need to unpack and really critically examine psychological constructs or theories to avoid misinterpretations and better understand their true impact in diverse contexts. The impact of family dynamics extends to major life events, such as divorce. During divorce, conflict may escalate as property and custody rights are decided. For the child, this upheaval can lead to leaving behind important friendships, adjusting to new family structures after parents remarry, or having only one parent available due to increased work demands. Emotionally, the impact of divorce on students can be profound. Feelings of sadness, confusion, and loss are common. Some students may struggle with the changing dynamics between their parents, while others might grapple with a sense of abandonment. It's a challenging period that requires careful navigation. Peer relationships also impact psychosocial development. Close friendships during formative years contribute significantly to building self-esteem. Interacting with peers allows children to develop social skills, empathy, and a sense of belonging. It's in these relationships that they learn valuable lessons in communication, cooperation, and conflict resolution. Having friends to share experiences with helps students navigate the complexities of emotions. Those who have strong peer connections are often better equipped to handle challenges and setbacks, fostering emotional resilience. The benefits of peer relationships extend beyond social impacts. Studies indicate a positive correlation between having friends and academic performance. Engaging with peers in collaborative learning environments promotes cognitive development and enhances the learning experience. The impact of peer relationships doesn't fade with childhood. Adults who had close friends during their formative years are more likely to maintain healthier relationships later in life. The skills learned in peer interactions continue to shape social interactions and contribute to overall well-being. Within the school environment, students form peer cultures. These microcosms create a distinct social environment where shared interests, preferences, and trends shape the collective identity of the group. Within these peer cultures, students establish norms for appearance and behavior. These norms can encompass everything from clothing styles to language choices. Conforming to these expectations becomes a way for individuals to signal their belonging to a particular group. Group loyalties are a significant aspect of peer cultures. Students may form strong bonds within their group, leading to a sense of camaraderie and shared identity. However, this dynamic can also lead to rejection for those who don't ally with the established norms, leaving them feeling upset and excluded. Peer cultures play a role in shaping individual identities. As students navigate these microcosms, they often explore different facets of their personality and interests, either conforming to or challenging the established norms. This process contributes to the ongoing formation of their self-concept. In today's sort of digital age, peer cultures have extended into online spaces, so social media provides these sort of additional avenues for students to engage with their peers, shaping virtual peer cultures that influence perceptions, trends, and social dynamics, sometimes far outside the typical school setting. And just a note here, you know, it is completely fine and valid for students to have interactions with peer groups online online. Obviously, we would want them to be safe and careful, but those sort of digital relationships can be just as enriching as an in-person friendship. Understanding the dynamics of these cultures is essential for us. Uh, Navigating the landscape requires sensitivity to the challenges students may face and proactive efforts to foster inclusive environments that celebrate diversity. And just because you might be thinking, well, I'm not so much older than my students or I have kids that are this age, every sort of few years this landscape changes. And so the experiences that each new crop of students has are going to be different than the last, even just from year to year sometimes. So it's important to remember that your experiences or your kids' experiences, your siblings' experiences, aren't always going to be analogous to what your current students are facing. It's essential also to acknowledge that not all peer relationships are positive. Rejection by peers can have lasting effects leading to challenges such as dropping out of school or engaging in risky behaviors. Aggression in peer interactions can manifest in various ways. Two primary types are instrumental aggression, where the goal is to gain an object or privilege, and hostile aggression, which is intended to inflict harm. Both have distinct dynamics and implications. Hostile aggression can further be characterized into overt aggression, involving direct threats or physical attacks, and relational aggression, centered around threatening or damaging social relationships. Boys are often associated with overt aggression, while girls may lean more toward relational aggression. Social media provides additional avenues for relational aggression. These online spaces become arenas for spreading rumors, exclusion, and damaging others' social standing. Understanding these dynamics is crucial for addressing the evolving landscape of aggression. Aggressive behaviors may not always be overt. It can manifest in subtle ways, so pay attention to changes in social dynamics, communication patterns, and emotional expressions. Addressing aggression requires a multifaceted approach. Interventions may include teaching conflict resolution skills, fostering empathy, and creating a positive and inclusive social environment. Early intervention is key to preventing the escalation of aggressive behaviors because children do not sort of quote-unquote, grow out of aggressive behaviors. They need to be explicitly instructed and experience explicit intervention. Cultivating emotional intelligence is a powerful tool in mitigating aggression, teaching children to understand and regulate their emotions, enhances their ability to navigate conflicts in healthier ways, contributing to positive social development. The media often portrays negative models of behavior from aggression to conflicts. Children in their formative years are highly impressionable, and exposure to such content can shape their understanding of acceptable social behaviors. Over time, children internalize the moral rules and principles presented in the media. This process can impact their moral reasoning and influence how they respond to ethical dilemmas. It's essential for parents and educators to be aware of the media content children consume. Jonathan Haidt suggests that instincts related to things like fairness, loyalty, authority, a sense of the sacred, and liberty lead to automatic emotional reactions to moral situations. Children then construct reasons for their reactions, often influenced by the moral values portrayed in the media. And we'll get into Haidt's theories more in a minute. While media can potentially contribute to desensitization and aggressive behavior, it's not all doom and gloom. Some schools have adopted programs aiming to increase students' capacity to care for others, fostering empathy as a counterbalance to negative media influences. If you've ever seen an episode of Bluey, that's a great example of using media to teach conflict resolution, understanding, and empathy. Teachers have a unique position to provide an alternative source of care and stability for students outside those other aspects of the microsystem. Academic caring involves teachers providing support for students' learning endeavors. It goes beyond imparting knowledge. It's about creating an environment where students feel encouraged, valued, and motivated to excel academically. This also involves creating an environment that is structured, organized, and predictable. Personal caring extends beyond academics, focusing on the well-being of students as individuals. Teachers who show genuine concern for students' personal issues, emotions, and challenges create a supportive and nurturing atmosphere within the classroom. Both academic and personal caring contribute to increased student engagement. When students feel seen, heard, and supported, they are more likely to actively participate in class, seek help when needed, and develop a positive attitude toward learning. Recognizing that students have diverse needs. Effective teachers tailor their approaches. Personal caring might be particularly crucial for students who feel alienated from school, providing a sense of belonging and emotional support. The effects of teacher caring extend beyond the classroom. Students who experience both academic and personal caring are more likely to develop positive self-concept, resilience, and a lifelong love for learning. Now we're going to pivot a bit here to a darker side of that microsystem, and that is students who are victims of abuse and neglect. Child abuse is a grave concern, and it's vital for educators and caretakers to be aware of potential signs. Some indicators include unexplained bruises, burns, bites, or other injuries, signs of fatigue, depression, frequent absences, poor hygiene, inappropriate clothing, and difficulties with peers. In Florida, teachers play a crucial role in safeguarding the well-being of students. The state has strict mandatory reporting laws to ensure that suspicions or evidence of child abuse are promptly reported to the appropriate authorities. You can find more information about laws and guidelines in the slide deck. Reporting suspected child abuse is not just a legal obligation, it is a moral imperative. Timely reporting can lead to interventions and support for the child, potentially preventing further harm. Recognizing and reporting child abuse can be emotionally challenging for teachers. Schools and districts often provide support systems and resources for educators to cope with the emotional impact of reporting and to navigate the complexities of the situation. If your school does not provide that, please make sure you seek out your own support. I can speak from experience that reporting the families of students that you know and care about and seeing the outcome of those reports can be extremely draining. But we're often the adults that have the most regular contact with these kids outside of the home, and we can make a huge difference in helping to get them out of dangerous situations. Let's take a breath and then pivot to our next topic, identity and self-concept. Eric Erickson, a renowned psychologist, proposed a theory that emphasizes the interaction between an individual's personal development and the social environment. His theory consists of eight stages, each representing a unique psychosocial crisis that individuals must navigate. In the first stage, during infancy, the crisis is trust versus mistrust. Babies learn to trust their caregivers, forming the foundation for healthy relationships. Mistrust can result from inconsistent care, impacting future interpersonal connections. Early childhood brings the crisis of autonomy versus shame and doubt. Children strive for independence and autonomy. Encouragement fosters self-confidence, while overly restrictive environments may lead to self-doubt. The third stage, initiative versus guilt, occurs during the preschool years. Children explore their world and develop a sense of initiative. Supportive environments promote a sense of purpose, while overly critical environments can lead to guilt. Elementary school years introduce the crisis of industry versus inferiority. Children engage in tasks that contribute to a sense of industry and competence. Feelings of inferiority may arise if they perceive their efforts as inadequate. Adolescence brings the critical stage of identity versus role confusion. Teens explore and define their identities. Successfully navigating this stage leads to a cohesive self-identity, while confusion about one's role can lead to identity crises. In early adulthood, the challenge is intimacy versus isolation. Forming close relationships and bonds is crucial for intimacy. Failure to establish connections may result in feelings of isolation. Middle adulthood involves the crisis of generativity versus stagnation. Adults seek to contribute to the next generation through work, family, or community involvement. Stagnation results from a lack of meaningful meaningful contribution. The final stage in late adulthood is integrity versus despair. Reflecting on life, individuals either feel a sense of integrity from a life well lived or despair from unfulfilled aspirations. James Marcia also tackled the idea of development, but his model focuses mostly on the adolescent years. He proposed four stages for developing your identity. Identity diffusion, where you haven't explored options or made commitments to roles, values, or goals. So think an undecided teenager. Identity foreclosure, which is where you've committed to an identity, like a career or belief system, without much exploration, often influenced by your family or pressure. So think you're following in your dad's footsteps. Moratorium, you're actively exploring identity options, trying things out, facing internal conflict. Think like a gap year, soul searching type situation. Backpacking through Europe, we used to say. Identity achievement is where you've explored and committed to an identity based on your own values and experiences. So now you are a confident adult with a chosen path. These stages aren't rigid timelines and people can move between them throughout life. Both Ericsson and Marsha both focus on identity development, but they vary in a couple of ways quick note here i said marcia's name wrong earlier it is james marcia not marcia so marcia anyway both erickson and marcia focus on identity development but they vary in a couple of ways erickson's model covers a broader lifespan including eight stages from infancy to adulthood while marcia zooms in on adolescence and specifically that ego identity the ego refers to your sense of self or perception of your identity Erikson focuses on resolving psychosocial crises like trust and mistrust, while Marcia emphasizes the balance between exploration and commitment when forming an identity. An analogy might be that Erikson provides sort of a roadmap for the whole journey, and Marcia is a close-up on the teenage years where you're focusing on choosing the right car. So how does all this apply to students who are considered a member of a racial or ethnic minority? Growing up as an ethnic or racial minority can be a unique challenge as individuals navigate the values, beliefs, and behaviors of their ethnic or racial group alongside those of the larger culture. Identity development often follows stages, starting from initial unawareness of differences to negotiating these differences, and then ideally achieving some kind of an equilibrium with their identity. This journey is multidimensional and nonlinear, with individuals identifying with various ethnic backgrounds, countries, or cultures. For many individuals, identity is not a singular dimension. They may identify with different ethnic backgrounds, countries, or cultures, adding complexity to their sense of self. In earlier research into psychosocial development, there was this common belief that adolescents' experience what you've probably heard referred to as an identity crisis, similar to the crises Erickson uses in his model. However, more recent research suggests that identity exploration increases as development progresses and that this process is gradual and subtle. Studies show several benefits associated with students' positive feelings about their racial or ethnic background, a stronger sense of ethnic pride, Identification and regard have been linked to improve academic achievement, psychological well-being, and even resilience against stressors unrelated to race. This suggests that fostering racial ethnic pride as seen in studies with African Americans, indigenous Americans, and other groups can positively impact adolescents' cognitive development, ethnic identity, mental health, and overall ability to cope with challenges. Essentially, embracing one's heritage can be a powerful source of support and a contributor to successes in multiple areas of life. Parenting styles play a crucial role in shaping ethnic and racial identity. Research indicates that parenting styles, particularly higher control parenting, are linked to better academic performance for students from various cultural backgrounds. Attachment bonds formed with parents also contribute to identity development. While attachment may be nurtured differently across cultures, the quality of these bonds has lasting implications for relationships throughout life. It's important to remember that what we know about developmental milestones and quote-unquote normal maturation comes from research on specific groups, which may not represent the whole population. Critics like those of Erickson's work point out that he mainly observed children in his clinical practice, many facing pre-existing conflicts and crises. This could have biased his and other clinicians' theories, making them overemphasize the role of crisis in everyone's development. In other words, what we see as sort of typical growing pains might not be universal and could be influenced by the specific samples studied. So keep an open mind and remember that development isn't always perfectly linear or full of dramatic clashes. Individual experiences and contexts matter a lot. So that was a look into how theorists view identity development. Now let's look at self-concept or your definition of self, which is a dynamic and complex aspect of development. It becomes increasingly intricate, differentiated, and abstract as children progress through various stages of growth. Self-concept evolves through constant self-reflection, social interaction, and experiences both in and out of school. Children begin to develop a sense of self by comparing themselves to personal or internal standards and social or external standards. Notably, self-concepts in specific academic areas such as math, languages, and science are closely related to performance in those areas. Additionally, gender and ethnic stereotypes play a significant role in shaping self-concept. At the top of the hierarchical model of self-concept is self-esteem. Self-esteem is an individual's overall judgment of their self-worth. It encompasses feelings of pride or shame about themselves as a person. Think of self-esteem as the evaluative component of self-concept. While self-concept is a cognitive structure, self-esteem involves the emotional and subjective assessment of one's value and worth. Self-esteem is closely tied to an individual's perception of their competence and performance in various domains of life. Academic achievements, social relationships, and personal accomplishments all contribute to shaping self-esteem. From the early years of elementary school to the end of high school, competence, belief in various subjects tend to decline for both boys and girls. This decline is observed in areas such as math, language, arts, and sports. Both boys and girls tend to report declines in general self-esteem during the transition to middle school. However, an interesting trend emerges as boys' self-esteem increases in high school, while girls' self-esteem tends to stay down. It's essential to note that while self-concept and self-esteem are often used interchangeably, they carry distinct meanings. Self-concept represents the broader definition of self, while self-esteem is a specific aspect within that framework. We've moved pretty quickly through the different processes involved in developing our self and social constructs. Basically, how the brain works to create a functioning human aware of itself and its place in the world. Now let's look at how our development shapes and is shaped by morality. We start with the theory of mind. At its core, a theory of mind is the understanding that other people are individuals with their own minds, thoughts, feelings, beliefs, desires, and perceptions. It's the realization that others have intentions and perspectives of their own. So let's go back to Argi. As they develop a theory of mind, they gain the ability to make sense of other people's behavior. This cognitive milestone allows Argi to understand that others have intentions and reasons behind their actions. The development of a theory of mind is crucial for various aspects of social interaction and communication. It enables Argy to navigate complex social scenarios, interpret others' emotions, and engage in more sophisticated forms of social play. Additionally, a well-developed theory of mind lays the foundation for empathy. Understanding the thoughts and feelings of others fosters a sense of compassion and connection, essential elements for healthy social relationships. This is a great example of where cognitive growth coincides with academic content. If a child's brain literally does not have the synapses connected to understand that others have different perspectives than they do, trying to teach them about character development or character perspective in a reading comprehension unit is going to be pretty difficult, as is asking them to solve word problems where they can't make sense of the basic construct of the problem. There is an aspect of theory of mine called false belief, which is one author puts it is, quote, the relation realization that it is possible to hold false beliefs about events in the world. This is also referred to as a first order false belief. Second order false belief is, quote, the realization that it is possible to hold a false belief about someone else's belief. Research has found that theory of mind and false belief abilities in younger children can predict reading and math achievement in later grades. Interestingly, they also found that second-order false belief wasn't a predictor of reading comprehension or math analysis later on, as in, it didn't really matter if kindergartners had advanced capabilities in theory of mind testing, and the researchers think this may be because that is a skill that is too cognitively advanced for that age. It's like asking kindergartners to run the 100 meters in under 20 seconds. Are there five-year-olds that can do that? Probably. Is it a good predictor of later athletic ability if they can't at that point? Probably not. Um, I've included some articles in the module that go into this in greater detail if you're interested. Now that Argy has developed the ability to understand that other people have thoughts and feelings, they will begin to demonstrate a sense of morality, which could be defined as a sense of right and wrong in the context of living cooperatively within a society. But how will Argy's morality develop over time? Lawrence Kohlberg proposed a theory of moral development that unfolds in three distinctive levels, pre-conventional, conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. Let's explore each level and its unique characteristics. At the pre-conventional level, moral judgments are primarily based on self-interest and personal consequences. Individuals in this stage focus on avoiding punishment or gaining rewards. It's a stage centered around the individual's own needs and desires. Moving on to the conventional level, moral reasoning expands to encompass societal norms and expectations. Individuals at this stage are guided by a desire to conform to social rules and gain approval. Moral decisions are influenced by maintaining social order and avoiding disapproval. The post-conventional level takes moral reasoning to a more abstract and personal level. Individuals at this stage consider broader ethical principles and values that may transcend societal norms. Moral judgments are guided by a commitment to justice and principles that go beyond immediate social expectations. While Kohlberg's theory offers valuable insights into moral development, critics argue that it may not fully account for cultural differences in moral reasoning, or the sometimes observed gap between moral reasoning and behavior. We may say that we would act in a certain way in a certain situation, but faced with an actual moral dilemma in the really real world, we may not act as morally as we assumed we would. He also studied only boys from early adolescence to early adulthood, which obviously leaves out a huge part of the population. He did attempt to account for some cultural differences by including groups from countries around the world, but he used the same moral dilemmas for all groups, which doesn't account for the foundational morality of various cultures. Carol Gilligan, recognizing the limitations of Kohlberg's theory, introduced an alternative lens through which to view moral development, particularly focused on women. So she was a student of Kohlberg's, and when she tried to apply Kohlberg's research to women, she found that their moral reasoning was based on care, especially for others. She also noted that in her research and experience as a professor, she found that men often underplayed their own feelings of care and guilt in order to conform to the gender norms of the time. And this was in the 60s and 70s. So Gillian proposed an ethic of care that contrasts with Kohlberg's emphasis on justice and individual rights. In her view, moral reasoning evolves through three levels – each intricately tied to caring relationships. So at the first level, individuals are primarily concerned with their own survival and well-being. This perspective is centered around self-interest and personal needs, reflecting sort of a basic form of moral reasoning. Moving to the second level, individuals begin to consider the needs of others, emphasizing self-sacrifice and a sense of responsibility toward those in their immediate circle. The focus shifts from pure self-interest to acknowledgement of interpersonal connections. And then the third level involves a broader understanding of morality, emphasizing nonviolence and a commitment to caring for all individuals. This level transcends immediate relationships, promoting a more inclusive and compassionate moral stance. In the early stages of development, children often perceive justice as synonymous with equal treatment for everyone. Their understanding of morality revolves around basic concepts of fairness grounded in their immediate experiences. This is why you get young children noticing that a classmate is getting something they aren't, say, an accommodation for a learning difference or a reward for behavior, and the the child declaring that it's not fair. Consider that famous drawing of, like, there's, you know, there's a three people of differing heights trying to watch, I think it's a football game or a soccer game, over a wooden fence. A child at this stage would assume that everyone should get the same height stool or a box or whatever to help them see over. As time progresses, children's beliefs about morality undergo a profound transformation. They shift from a simplistic view of justice to a more nuanced understanding that encompasses beneficence and fairness. Moral principles become independent of the norms of any particular group. So if we think back to the fence drawing, a child at this stage would understand that not everyone would need the same height of stool or a stool at all. The evolution continues as individuals recognize that moral principles are independent of societal norms. Consider laws that are unjust. Just because something is legal doesn't make it, the, make it ethical or fair. This marks a significant shift in thinking within the moral domain, emphasizing a commitment to broader ethical principles that transcend immediate social expectations. So again, to the drawing, you know, do we even need a fence? Should everybody just be allowed to go to the game? So the journey through evolving moral and conventional domains is a delicate balance. It involves navigating the complexities of justice, fairness, and societal expectations while developing a more comprehensive and principled moral compass. So um, we're going to talk about one final theorist who specializes in morality. I mentioned him earlier in the podcast. Um, His name is Jonathan Haidt. He proposes a perspective that extends beyond the rational aspects of moral decision making. He emphasizes that in everyday life, making moral choices involves a complex interplay of emotions, instincts, relationships, and practical considerations. His moral foundations theory is based on three principles. First, that we feel first and rationalize later. Second, morality binds and blinds. And third, morality is multifaceted. So he identifies several moral foundations that guide human behavior. These include fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity, and liberty. It's what I mentioned earlier. According to Haidt, these foundations give rise to automatic emotional reactions to moral situations, which shape our initial responses. He suggests that after the emotional response, individuals then construct reasons to justify their reactions. This post hoc reasoning allows individuals to articulate and communicate their moral decisions, even though the initial response may have been emotional and instinctive. One significant contribution Haidt highlights is the cultural variation of moral values. Different cultures prioritize and emphasize distinct moral foundations, binding groups together based on shared values. However, this can also lead to a degree of blindness to the moral beliefs of other groups. Haight's perspective challenges the traditional emphasis on rational moral reasoning. It underscores the importance of emotional and instinctive reactions in shaping moral behavior, offering a more comprehensive understanding of the factors influencing our moral choices. I'm including in the module a link to Haight's TED Talk from about 15 years ago, where he discusses the moral foundations of American politics. In it, he doesn't take any sides, but he goes over our moral foundations, how these foundations shape us and our beliefs, and how we can overcome the sort of quote-unquote moral binding of our cultures and propensity for creating echo chambers to listen and to be open to the view of others. The text uses cheating as an example of morality in education. I think this is one of those instances where moral reasoning and behavior may be at odds. The text cites a statistic that 75 to 98% of college students admitted to cheating in high school, but I would guess that if given the binary of whether cheating is right or wrong, most would say it's wrong. However, who among us hasn't cheated on a test or let someone copy their homework or looked up answers when they weren't supposed to? So if the morality of cheating and why students cheat is of interest to you, I recommend going and reading that section. So we made it to the end. We've covered a lot of ground. We looked at physical development, including growth patterns across infancy, childhood, and adolescence, the influence of sex, hormones, and cultural and ethnic background on physical development, the importance of play and physical activity, the potential challenges like early and late maturation, eating disorders, and obesity. Next, we covered social development, including Bronfenbrenner's bioecological model and its layers, microsystem, mesosystem, exosystem, macrosystem, and chronosystem. The impact of family dynamics on social development, importance of peer relationships and peer cultures, understanding and addressing aggression and bullying in peer relationships, the role of teachers in fostering positive and inclusive social environments, and recognizing and reporting child abuse and neglect. Then we looked at Identity and self-concept, that included Erickson's theory of psychosocial development and its eight stages. Marsh's identity development model and its four stages. Exploring identity development within the context of racial and ethnic minority groups. And factors influencing self-concept and self-esteem, including academic performance and gender stereotypes. Finally, we explored moral development, including the evolution of a theory of mind and its importance for social interaction and empathy and even academic performance stages of understanding intentions and developing moral reasoning, and the importance of cultivating empathy and pro-social behavior in students. There are a ton of additional resources in this module. Please explore them at your convenience or save them for later. So that is it for this week. I hope you have a great week and I will see you next time.